Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. The pumpkins are rotting, but the political science is so, so fresh. It's election shock <laughs> therapy. Hey, everybody. Wow. Hey. I have a serious question. Uh, I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this podcast call are... Andy Bramson. Matt Cookham. I'm Mitch Crum. Guys, what is the appropriate date to throw out your pumpkins from Halloween? I mean, do we have a, is there a, is there like a rule for this? Pretty close to the day after. I think they usually are pretty they rot pretty quickly. Okay, mine are doing okay. Um, our producer Sam Mulberry says October fifteenth, which is two weeks before <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> All right, that that's that's either curmudgeonly or just bad at the calendar. I'm not sure which one. Um, a little bit of both. A little bit of both. Okay. Guys, I don't know. I, I've still got mine up. My kids don't want to get rid of them. I know that they shouldn't be there at Thanksgiving, but I'm not sure what the proper date is to get rid of my pumpkins. So, um, you know uh, you know whose campaign did turn into a pumpkin, though? It's Terry McCall's. <laughs> How's that for a transition? Yeah. Nice. The reason we're here today with uh, with my friends <laughs> is to do a quick hit podcast. Just quick check in on what happened in the 2021 election results. There were a few big national races that are worth paying attention to. Some states crazily like to elect their governors in off-year elections. That includes Virginia and New Jersey, which in turn up much more exciting than anticipated this year. And then there are a couple of things closer to home for us that we'd like to hit too. So let me do a quick, quick rundown. And then I want to ask you all a couple of questions. The race that got by far the most attention of anything in the national news media this election cycle was the gubernatorial race in Virginia uh, between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. This was seen as a bellwether or perhaps a canary in the coal mine for what is shaping up to be a disastrous midterm elections in 2022 for Democrats. Uh, McAuliffe was uh, entering into an, um, a gubernatorial race where his party held the governor's seat. Now he was not himself an incumbent, although he had been governor before. So he's as close as you could get to being an incumbent while not actually holding the governorship. Plus Joe Biden, just about a year ago, won Virginia by 10 points. And yet McAuliffe lost and lost by two, lost by two percentage points. And so this is a pretty convincing win for Glenn Youngkin in an otherwise favorable to a Democrat kind of election. And to really drive the, the point home, Phil Murphy, who was a Democrat, did win re-election in New Jersey. But this was a state that Joe Biden had won by 16 points, and he barely scraped through defeating um, uh, Jack Ciattarelli. Uh, his Republican challenger. So this has caused Democrats to fly into what can only be described as a tizzy, anticipating um, uh, significant losses in the midterms. Kevin uh, McCarthy, the Republican uh, minority leader in the House, is smelling blood in the water. He suggested that 70 Democratic seats will be competitive in 2022, which seems aggressive. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, a couple of local races to pay attention to as well. In the wake of the killing of George Floyd, there were multiple calls by the um, the left uh, that was uh, sort of the left side of the American political establishment calling for the uh, abolishment of police departments, especially police departments uh, that showed persistent biases against people of color. And Minneapolis put a ballot measure on the ballot to uh, essentially reorganize their police department in favor of a public safety department, which would have a different funding allocation system. And that ballot measure failed. And so Minneapolis retains its police department as previously configured, although its governor, or sorry, although its mayor is still promising reforms. That mayor, by the way, Jacob Fry, won re-election. That in of itself is not surprising, but it is worth noting because he did it via a... um, uh, a, a more unusual kind of voting system that I might turn to Professor Bramson to explain. Um, <laughs> so, um, guys, first, big picture, big overarching question. How much does 2021 matter? I mean, so I, I think it's, it's helpful to sort of break our analysis down into sort of two different um, brackets or buckets, right? So first has to do with fundamentals. The second has to do with things that are particular to um, particular races on the ground or just a particular political moment. So first of all, um, we need to sort of state um, what has become sort of a a truism in American political science um, that the party that controls the White House gets hurt in the following several elections, right? Certainly in the midterms, but certainly in um, the off-year elections as well. Um, This is um, sort of called what's sometimes referred to as sort of a thermostatic effect, right? So just as when a thermostat, whenever the temperature rises or drops below a certain threshold, basically it activates a system that regulates the temperature. So the American public whenever you know one party sort of overreaches or isn't competent or bumbles around um the american electorate sort of activates to sort of recalibrate into balance right so this is a feature um that we've seen in american politics for really uh, a number of decades now right and so i think um you know that explains a large portion of what we've seen um in these elections over the past you know the past couple of weeks right which is why you see republicans consistently doing well across the board you would expect that when the president um has relatively low approval numbers right and when there have been several different sort of um complicated issues that have sort of mired down the majority party right whether it's on covid or education or sort of foreign policy with afghanistan all of these things are sort of dragging down the democratic party and so it's really not a surprise um that democrats sort of took a shellacking um uh, you know last week so that's the fundamentals we could go on to talk about particularities which i think are important as well yeah, I'm always torn on the how much does it matter question. I mean, because on the one hand, you're talking about very particular races and particular places, right? And so you can always say, like, there's, there's all these these factors. You know, how, how much do we project out from a few places to the whole country? But it does seem to suggest something about kind of the enthusiasm um, on the Republican side and maybe a lack thereof on the Democratic side. I mean, the fact that, that you have roughly similar um, vote swings in terms of, like, what Biden's vote total was in New Jersey and Virginia in, you know, just last year, in, and then what happened in the governor races does seem kind of significant. Um, and the fact that the president did get involved in Virginia in particular, trying to campaign for um, Terry McAuliffe, and that, you know, 
he, he sort of framed it as a, a test, an early test of his strength, um, and then was defeated. Um, that also that also seems significant. So, um, you know, it certainly says something about where the parties are with enthusiasm. I mean, it's a warning to the Democratic Party. Um, whether they can do anything about that warning um, to change their results next year, I'm, you know, I'm skeptical. I mean, I think you know, 2022 has always been a year that's likely to result in the flipping of the House. It's almost impossible to see how that doesn't happen to the Democrats. Um, the Senate has always seemed vulnerable. I think that's a little bit more complicated, and no doubt we'll talk about that on some future podcast. Um, but you know, 2022 never looked like a great year for them. It now looks maybe even less great. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things too, just to <clears throat> add on to in terms of a couple of things that just to, just to think about. I mean, one of them is, and I know we'll get into some of the particulars, but I guess there's one other race that I've been thinking about that is kind of in this context too, and I think it kind of tells a slightly different story, and that's the um, failure of the recall of Gavin Newsom. Um, mm. And so one of the things to note, which, you know, that race wasn't all that long ago. Um, and in that race, um, you know, basically Newsom was able to not only hang on, but I mean, his, his you know, his results were actually pretty um, forceful. Now, again, this is a different stage, you know, it's tell. And so, you know, it's California is a different context, obviously, um, all those sorts of things. But I think, you know, one of the things that I, I do think there's sort of been this massive um, freak out. I think the New York Times even had like, I can't remember, there was like a banner or something that said like, you know, like Democrats hit the panic button or something like that. Um, <laughs> I can't remember the exact headline, but it was something along those lines. And, and I mean, certainly I think there's there's a lot, you know, uh, obviously Republicans should feel uh, emboldened and Democrats should feel worried. Um, but I do, you know, as usual, I, you know, there's always some caution, I think, with, with taking a couple of results and, and extrapolating too far, which, of course, is always the, the, the danger with these things. And I do think like the Gavin Newsom race perhaps gives a little bit of, you know, caution in some ways to, to extrapolating too far from these from these results, too. Can I throw one more thing on top of that, which is I'll, I'll make this brief and then I'll throw it to Matt. But the um, we need to remember that these were both state races governors are state officials and although there we talked last time about our increased nationalization of politics i still think this was a source of ire for uh parents particularly the places where uh democrats had the biggest losses compared to 2020 was amongst parents who were really unhappy about school situations, right? And governors make choices about when schools get back in session and how quickly schools open back up. I'm not sure that that same kind of ire carries over to Congress. Maybe it does. I agree with Andy. This still sets up very, very badly for Democrats in 2022. But I'm not sure the same kinds of ire are going to be present there that are present here. So, Matt, do you agree with that? yeah, I would agree. I think there are certain certain sorts. I mean, we can we can use sort of uh, the California recall election kind of as an example here too. I mean, so to the extent that you know issues, I mean, some some governors' races are more nationalized, or some candidates try to make their their races more national in character, right? Um, some candidates are better at focusing more on sort of state level issues, right? So so Glenn Youngkin, you know, very much focused on. Um, on issues that you know Virginians themselves cared about, right? Which is why there is some polling that suggests that he won by you know roughly 15 points uh, among parents of K through 12 um, kids, right? Um, he was successful in sort of you know messaging to that group, right? Um, whereas you know his opponent was was not. Um, so. 
and and another thing about sort of the sort of comparing Virginia with California, right? So so Larry Elder, the Republican, right? He was he's a long you know he he's an institution, right? In California, he's very well known. He's a conservative talk show host. He's very Trumpy, right? Um, there's no way someone like that is ever going to win in California, right? Um, but you know, and so but you go to Virginia, right? Glenn Youngkin, who no one knew this time last year, right? He's a businessman, hadn't been in politics before. He runs a campaign in which he says, yeah, I'll accept Trump's endorsement, but actually kind of keeps Trump at a sort of a, an arm's length. And Trump, you know, doesn't, you know, doesn't want Trump campaigning with him and says, I'm focusing on, you know, particular issues that Virginians care about. And it's, um, and it's his opponent who's trying to tie him to Trump, right? Um, and I think, what Youngkin was able to do was able to sort of keep Trump sort of away from his messaging. And that allowed him to draw just enough of these sort of Biden voters um, to be able to actually pull off a win. Right. So there, there is a Biden Youngkin voter, you know, a, a group of them in Virginia um, that allowed, that allowed Youngkin to win. And I think, you know, one thing some other people are pointing out is that Trump largely stayed out of this. He didn't try to tank Yunkin. He didn't try to sort of portray Yunkin as like a, a squish or a rhino or not sufficiently conservative or loyal. And I, I think, I think, and I, you know, I'm concerned, I le at least for Republicans, that if Trump does try to get involved um, in future races, does try to sort of weigh in, that's going to really hurt Republicans in the midterms. So, so I guess my hot take is that the greatest ally for Republicans going into the midterms are the Democrats. If the Democrats can't run government competently, and it's the you know the crazies on the Democratic side who are, <laughs> who are getting the most attention, that helps Republicans. Democrats are actually the biggest ally. Nope. <laughs> um, for some reason, Matt uh, froze there, but uh, yeah, I, I, do think, I, do, I do think Matt's right about, um, oh, you know, his, the, the point he was making there, I think, is, is actually really well um, taken and very well, very well stated. I think, um, you know, one of the things just to, you know, it's, it, it is going to be interesting to see just how just how much Trump uh, does weigh in in coming in coming races. Right. Um, and of course, you know, he's absolutely right that Yonkin um, attempted to basically, um, you know, push, uh, you know, basically tried to keep Trump Trump at arm's length without actually, um, you know, kicking him, kicking him off, uh, you know, completely referencing him. But I'm not sure that Trump's always going to be willing to do that. And I guess one of the races that I've been watching kind of closely um, that goes along with that is the uh, Republican primary in Ohio. Mm. Uh, mm. And, uh, and that one has de definitely has some sort of national um, play right now, particularly because J.D. Vance, um, the New York Times bestselling um, <laughs> um, memoirist right. from, you know, Hillbilly uh, Elegy basically is one of the is one of the one of the main candidates um, right. for that for that race. And oh, I recall, is, Mitch, is, is he, he's not winning the primary though right now, correct? He's not. Interestingly, Josh Mandel uh, is, is currently pulling ahead, I believe. And um you know, what's what's interesting, though, about that race is that Vance and Mandel have basically just been trying to out-Trump each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what we've seen is basically just an increasing escalation over the last, 
I don't know, two or three months actually at this point mm-hmm. um, of both of them just increasingly having, you know, Trumpier and Trumpier statements and trying to, you know, vie for that kind of vote. And it'll be interesting to see how much that takes hold, you know, and, and, and how much sort of the Yonkin path will, will be available to Republicans and how much the sort of like, you know, out trumping Trump path will, will, will take hold and what effect that has um, on these, on these races. And just to go to the other side, too, I think, you know, Matt's point that the Democratic Party is kind of the best ally in some ways for um, for Republicans. I do think there's a lot to that. And I think especially McAuliffe himself actually said this, that the sort of the infighting in Congress for the last you know few months was not helping him. I mean, he kind of I can't remember his exact statement, but he was pretty close to begging, um, you know, the, the congressional uh, Democrats to basically pass something <laughs> before mm-hmm. the election. And which they obviously didn't do, but they did immediately following, which, you know, I'm sure is his cold comfort. Yes, they were probably not super thrilled that that was the um, order in which things happened. But uh, but nonetheless, I do think it's going to be interesting. I'm not sure the infrastructure bill that was just passed is going to be enough um, to sort of demonstrate Democratic, um, you know, effectiveness, although it definitely gives them a real solid win. I mean, it's not to take anything away from it. I do think, you know, there's there's some real quality there. And and interestingly, you know, some bipartisanship as well. Um, but nonetheless, you know, it's it's a lot of it's going to hinge on whether there are other victories. You know, if, if if the Democrats in Congress can rack up two or three more reasonable pieces of legislation, then maybe we're talking about something that looks a little bit different um, for the midterms. But even with that, I mean, it's hard to overcome the fundamentals. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Just, these three races we've been talking about, like, I mean, on the to get on a kind of spectrum here, right? Like, it does highlight. I mean, what are the different opportunities? I mean, like, so California is super blue, right? I mean, like, you're never going to get a Republican elected statewide the way things are right now, right? Or at least certainly not a Republican like Larry Elder, who's kowtowing to Trump. Um, Although worth noting, there are plenty of pockets of California that are deeply red. It's course, just they're, they're way outweighed by the very way blue out, cities. They're yeah. way outnumbered. So you're not going to win statewide like that. Yeah. You're going to win in those pockets, of course. And you can get very conservative members of Congress, for example, from California. But you're not going to get senators like that. right? And you're not going right. to get governors, except if you vote out Newsom, right? Um, who also underperformed Biden, right? I mean, like there were, there were Biden people who voted to recall Newsom. But most of them decided, like, look, we don't want to risk having a Larry Elder as governor, so we'll stick with Gavin, even if we're not all that enthused. You know, Virginia is blue, but not as blue, right? There's a little bit more of a, a, a tinge the other way there, right? And so there's there was an opportunity for Youngkin, and he threaded that needle effectively. Ohio, on the other hand, is red, right? And so the, the, the incentive, as Mitch has just pointed out, is kiss up to Trump, right? you got to turn out the base, turn out the base effectively, um, and, you know, you'll if you can get the Ohio you know, Republican Party's nomination, you're a pretty good shot to win that, that Senate election, right? Um, and so you, what you want to do is make sure you're holding that base um, and you'll probably be fine. And that seems to be the game that Mandela and Vance are playing. One quick question for Mitch here. Is it possible that, let's say Vance somehow overcomes Mandel to win? Man, uh, Vance kind of looks like Yunkin, right? He's, a, he's an investment guy. He's a... He's a um, you know, I mean, he's... A, yes, he grew, yes, he has Hillbilly Elegy to his name, but... You know, he's uh, he's kind of he could make that Yunkin turn. Can he do that in Ohio? Can he sort of after if he could beat Mandel, can he sort of shift his way back away from Trump? I, I think he's gone too far. I think, uh, you know, there, there's just too much out there. He has too many statements at this point. I don't think okay. he can back off at this point. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I mean, you know, one of the things to keep in mind with Ohio, and I think this goes back to sort of the the way that especially for the Senate. I know that, you know, the House 
is sort of a different animal, but especially for the Senate where we can sort of see the complications they're going to come, you know, and again, the comparisons to Yonkin kind of fall away in some ways is because, you know, in, in that Ohio Senate race, um, you know, Ohio just elected uh, Sherrod Brown or just reelected Sherrod mm-hmm. Brown. And, you know, that was already after Ohio had kind of made its turn towards the Republican Party. So it's interesting to think about, you know, if 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 another Senate candidate comes along that looks a whole lot like Trump in Ohio, if that, um, you know, if that if they're if the if 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 Ohio is willing to elect that kind of statewide leader. I mean, you know, this is also the state of Mike DeWine and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if only the party decided everything would be great. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, so this kind of brings us back to the, the, the thing that we've, you know, railed on, you know, various junctures in the past here on this podcast is our primary system, right? So Glenn Youngkin um, was chosen in, in, a, in a weird sort of way. He was not the first, second or third choice. He was the sixth choice of Virginians in a ranked choice voting system for their primary. So they so the Republicans basically in Virginia, the Republican Party organization in Virginia basically changed how they went about selecting their candidate, right? So they changed the voting system. Um, and they also basically gave, it, it was convoluted, and I don't understand all the ins and outs, but gave basically gave some power to the party organization to weigh in um, and have some measure of say in who ultimately becomes the party's, uh, the party's candidate in the general election. And lo and behold, that produces, um, produces a guy um, who is, you know, not crazy, um, you know, relatively moderate by sort of current Republican standards, um, is conservative enough to get the Trump endorsement and get Trump voters out, but is also able to peel off um, some people who are disaffected by the other side, right? So this just goes to show if you can sort of make adjustments to the primary system, um, parties actually can, there's a, parties have a vested interest and ought to have a vested interest in doing this because it allows them to when in states where they are potentially at a disadvantage when the fundamentals are moving in their direction, essentially. Right. right. Um, right. Party prim- primary systems really matter is what I'm trying yeah. to say. Yeah. They do. Um, one quick thing before we go. So the Minneapolis uh, voters uh, rejected a call to reorganize their police department to department of public safety, which would have involved a significant amount of budgetary reallocation as well um does this mean that some a lot of the protest movement at least at least the policy oriented parts of the protest movement of 2020 is dead in the water i i don't i don't know if it's quite fair to say it's dead in the water um i do think part of it, um, you know, to, as, as far as that goes, I mean, one of the things to sort of think about is, you know, um, first of all, well, I guess the first thing to say is it failed, but, um, but it was also somewhat close. True. You know, it's Very not true. like this was, it's not like this was a wholehearted, like, you know, 80% of the city. It was not broadly repudiated. Correct. Right. Exactly. You know, this is, I mean, again, it's not like it was razor thin, but it was also not, you know, it wasn't a blowout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that tells you something right there. I mean, that says that there's a significant portion of the city that's um, not particularly pleased with the direction that things, um, you know, have, have been going and with, and with keeping the current configuration. But I think the other part, too, is, and I, you know, again, I wasn't in the cities for this campaign, so I can only say from afar, like, exactly what it looked like. 
Um, but it just seems like the alternative plan is a little was underdeveloped, or at least it was as the advertising of it was was underdeveloped. It was not clear enough exactly what was going to replace the police department. And I'm I think you know maybe maybe you know I think and I think the other part too is I, I wonder if voters and again I'm not in Minneapolis anymore, so I can't <laughs> directly say I, I can't easily take the temperature of, of people around there. But, you know, I also wonder if part of the part of it, too, is if people want a more normal um, political process for reforming the police department, you know, if wanting it to come through city council and the mayor mm. and things like that, as opposed to um, a ballot initiative. Right. And I think that's, that's right, Mitch. And I think, you know, you shouldn't we shouldn't interpret the 52 percent as saying, you know, everything's fine. Nothing needs to change. That's not at all what they're saying. I think most of those people would agree. Right. That, you know, there are some real problems here. Right. The question is, what is the productive way to address those problems is it abolish this thing and then create something that's going to have to do many of the same things right um, because you still have crime and you still have you know social situations that will have to be dealt with and so forth right um or is the more productive way to say hey political leaders that we're electing right now work on it figure it out use the existing structures use the existing you know rules that we have but then start fixing them making them better right so that we are not going to keep doing this so I, that's how i interpret that i mean like you know, there is a deep desire in Minneapolis to see things get better. Um, but they're saying instead of like throwing out this, this what we have right now and replacing it with something else that's pretty vague, um, let's try to work through the system. Uh, and, you know, hopefully Minneapolis's leaders will take that seriously and do it well. Um, I think that's, you know, what, what the citizens are hoping for. We'll see yeah. what happens. I'll a couple other things to this. So, uh, if I m remember correctly, f two of the four Minneapolis City Council members who were sort of very sort of stridently supportive of abolishing the police department, they were they were voted out of office. Right. Correct. Also, Minneapolis voters, I think, express a lack of confidence in basically the effectiveness of the city council as a whole because basically they voted an amendment. To the to the charter that basically gives the mayor more power over the city council, yeah. right? Um, the city council, you know, has been has been incompetent um, in a variety of ways, um, and and while there is a lot of support for you know significant reform of the police, uh, there doesn't seem to be you know a desire by a majority to actually abolish a place altogether. And if you look at broader sort of polling of of the American electorate. Um, in general, um, most people do not support abolishing police departments, including um, lots of minorities, lots of blacks actually do not support abolishing right. the police. They actually want they want the police and they want better policing. They don't want no yeah. policing. Right? Um, and I think this vaguely worded amendment, it wasn't just vague advertising. It was way underdeveloped um, in and it, all the implications hadn't been thought through. And the council members who were pushing this hadn't been able to sort of put together a coherent policy or what the replacement would be. And I think people got a sense that this is going in the wrong direction um, and, and we're fed up with the, the council's ineptitude on it. So I think that's why you had prominent Democrats weighing in and saying like, don't do this. Exactly. Uh, I think, and honestly, I think this, you know, even though we're, we're, we've not, we haven't been kind of optimistic about the democratic situation for 2022. I think the democratic party kind of dodged a bullet here. They would have been stuck with this. Um, and, and every bad thing that happened in Minneapolis between now and the midterms of 2022, or for that matter, the presidential 24 would have been blamed on this. Um, if, if this move had gone forward. Right. And so I think in that sense, like, however bad things may feel right now for them, um, it could have been worse. Yeah. yeah. And 
Well, guys, that's really helpful. Uh, we need to head out. But thanks for helping me understand what to make of the 2021 elections. Now, obviously, as we get into the 2022 elections, we're going to be spending a lot more time. This podcast is called Election Shock Therapy, after all. <laughs> but we'll be uh, talking about local races, um, especially con uh, congressional races, and their implications for federal governance, too. So um, please feel free to submit questions to us things you'd like to hear us talk about, things you're confused about, things you're so curious about. If you want me to make Andy Bramson explain ranked choice voting to you, I will do it. So if um, uh, feel free to write into us. You can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Make sure you check out our podcast channel too. That's channel 3900. Um, and uh, they're also reachable at channel 3900 at gmail.com. A lot of great stuff on the podcast channel. Make sure you check it out until we're back in your feed. Thanks for listening to us and go Royals. Go Royals.